Thank you, Todd and Dennis, for those very kind words. Let's start today with a really simple game. If you're watching live, I invite you to hop on the Church Online platform and try to guess who this figure is from church history. If you're not watching live, you can certainly guess as well. While you know him as a different name, we're going to call him Giovanni Bardone. He was born to a wealthy cloth merchant in the late 12th century. And Giovanni had everything going for him. He was good looking. He was wealthy. He was intelligent. He could spend lavishly and his parents wouldn't mind because of their great wealth. And yet with so much going on, he found himself rather unsettled. As though there was something missing, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. One day while he was selling his father's cloth in the marketplace, a beggar came up to him asking him for some money. Giovanni was very polite to the beggar and said, just stand to the side. I'm just helping a client and I'll come right back to you. The beggar, even though thinking Giovanni was very polite in this, thought to himself, that was just a nice way of asking me to leave. And he meandered on to somewhere else who might actually be willing to give him some coin. But Giovanni was dead serious. After working with the client who was there, he set off after the beggar, found him and emptied all of his pockets, giving the money to him. His friends found out about this and mocked him mercilessly, and that was nowhere near what his dad did. His dad ridiculed him, yelled at him. Some accounts say even beat him. But a fire had been lit in Giovanni's heart, and a flame was starting to grow stronger, a flame that said, I don't want to be a part of the wealthy merchant class anymore. And so... Not knowing what to do, Giovanni joined the military and very soon found himself as a prisoner of war for one year's time. Upon his release from prison, his father welcomed him back home, thinking, now a year has passed. Certainly some sense has been knocked into the head of my young son. But that wasn't the case. After a few months working for his father, Giovanni joined the army a second time. And while away from home, God gave him a vision that made Giovanni decide to leave everything behind. Any guesses as to our mystery man is yet? 12th century, Italian, wealthy. Now in his mid-20s, Giovanni went on a pilgrimage and found himself among the poor, begging at St. Peter's Basilica. And during this time, God gave him a second vision. And God said to him, go and repair my house, which you can see is lying in ruins. And so Giovanni went back to his father's house, took a whole bunch of cloth and took it to the local church. He made the church beautiful, took the extra cloth and sold it and gave all the money to the priest. When his dad found out, he was furious. He actually beat his son and then locked him up, not letting him out. Eventually, his dad went away on a business trip and his mom let him go. And at that time, Giovanni decided that he would join a local monastery and even among the monks was applauded for his poverty and for his way of life. And just shy of his 30th birthday, Giovanni, who you know as St. Francis of Assisi, made his plea before Pope Innocent III and shared with him his rule for life that all his followers would take a vow of poverty to follow the teachings of Jesus and to walk in his footsteps. The Franciscan monks, now the third largest order in the Catholic Church, and so moved by the current Pope, who's taken on the name Francis, have done great things over the last 800 years. For Francis of Assisi, it wasn't enough to simply believe in the word of God. There was this deep-held conviction to give his life toward the cause and to bring Jesus into all of life. 
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're watching through our online platform, there's certainly a Bible app that you can tap on, or you can even pause me. I'll be here when you get back and grab a Bible to follow along with. 1 Peter is at the end of uh, the Bible. You know, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And over the last few weeks, we've had some really difficult teachings. We've talked about what it means to submit to the government, what it means to submit to our employers, how our husbands and wives can work together to make beautiful marriages that are glorifying to God. These teachings can be really hard, especially if you're in a tough marriage, you don't have a good relationship with your boss, and if you think your politicians are just wrong. It's one thing to believe in the scriptures. It's another thing to have the conviction to live that out. And for the note takers in the room, that's where we start today. Belief and conviction. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. For most of you listening right now, life is really good. You're sitting on the couch, you have a cup of coffee in hand, you may be watching with the rest of your family, even if you're listening later on in the week, maybe you're walking your dog or you're in your car, you're getting ready in the morning. But it's one thing to be told, submit to the government when you're sitting on your deck and the sun is streaming down on you. It's another thing when a loved one is about to get married and you think, I can't go to the wedding? It's one thing to submit to your boss when he says on Friday afternoon of a long weekend, you know what, it's one o'clock, just go home, enjoy the afternoon off on me. It's another thing to submit to your boss when he says, hey everybody, gotta work hard this weekend, we gotta work through the weekend, I know it's the long weekend, that doesn't matter. What happens when the rubber hits the road? As one scholar writes, a belief is something you'll argue about, a conviction is something you'll die for. So Peter starts to get really personal as he writes to the church. All of you, he says, live in harmony with one another. We're to work together like an orchestra with each member playing the instrument God has given them beautifully to play. Have you ever been to the symphony? When I was in college, our music professor uh, was part of the symphony, and so we got incredibly cheap seats, and we would often go. It was a way to take out a girl on a date. And before the symphony begins, all the musicians are up on the stage and they're playing with their instruments, they're working through difficult pieces, they're tuning their instruments, and it's just this incredibly loud ruckus. But then the lights go dim. Everything goes quiet. And out walks the conductor, usually in a tuxedo, he might say a couple words. He might simply take a bow. But there's this hush that goes across the room. When they start playing, it sounds absolutely beautiful. We're not going to walk through each of these five characteristics in this way, but let's look at them again to see how they all tie together. All of you, writes Peter, 
have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These aren't just five random attributes, but they radiate from the center. The key to unlocking them is to realize that they reflect the love, the grace, the compassion of Jesus. We tend to think of compassion as this idea of of a feeling or emotion, but Jesus, it never stays that way. It always becomes an action. The belief turns into conviction. One commentator, upon taking a deeper look at this compassion in the life of Jesus, found that compassion was always followed by an and. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has compassion on the people and he begins to feed them. In Matthew 9, Jesus has compassion for those who are following him, and he prays for them. In Matthew 20, Jesus has compassion on two blind men, and he gives them sight. In Mark 1, Jesus has compassion on a leper, and he heals them from a skin disease. It's not enough to simply believe something is true. We need conviction to follow up. Peter continues in verse 9, Do not repay anyone evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. You might be familiar with this phrase of health and wealth, that followers of Jesus live long and good and prosperous lives and have financial blessing. But that's not what Peter is talking about. And I would argue that's not what the New Testament says at all. When we look at two of the main characters of the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, these are men who are upright, who are holy. In Jesus' case, perfect and well-respected among the New Testament. Jesus never owned a home, suffered an excruciating death. And writing about the Apostle Paul, the Bible actually says in Acts 9.16 about how he must suffer for the name of God. The blessings Peter is talking about here are spiritual. They're psychological. They're relational. Blessings that he talks about as he sprinkles throughout the book. He talks about how following Jesus brings you an incredible love and joy and sense of peace. He talks about how when you develop a fear of God, you no longer have a fear of people. How living in obedience to the scriptures will avoid God's discipline. How having outstanding character means God will answer our prayers. I could easily tell a story of how missionaries are insulted. They're tortured. They are completely rejected by the people that they go and visit. And eventually they continue to stay and to continue to love and serve those communities and ultimately win some to faith. Those stories exist. I could tell them they're wonderful stories. But sometimes that sounds like that's just what the spiritual people do. So how do we make this personal? How does it become something that's a part of my very own life? How many of you sitting around the coffee room at work, hanging out with friends, dropping your kids off at school and talking to some other parents or any other of a dozen places we find ourselves hanging out, have been insulted, have been made fun of, have people say, you're a Christian? Do you actually believe that stuff? And said nothing in return. Did you know there's a spiritual blessing that's taking place there? Because I think for many people who are watching this, they could say, you know, something interesting happened because I didn't respond antagonistically in return. People actually came back to me, maybe later that day, maybe later that week, maybe it was a couple months. And they said, you know, 
I know, I know I made fun of you, but my friend is in the hospital. Would you be willing to pray for them? Hey, look, I know I insulted you and I know I made fun of your faith, but I'm actually a little bit curious why you believe the things that you believe. We have opportunities to share. There are spiritual blessings that God has stored and the world is watching. Peter is honest. He says, hey, look, the struggle is real, but so are the blessings. In verses 10 to 14, Peter is quoting a portion of Psalm 134 and giving straightforward advice of how to experience the richness that God has to offer. Again, here's what he says. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He gives three ideas here in quick succession. Guard your speech, turn from evil, seek peace. For this will warrant a spiritual blessing. There are entire sermons dedicated to what our tongue is capable of doing, both good and for bad. The book right before 1 Peter is the book of James, and James um, uses many illustrations about the tongue. And one of them, he says, is it can set a small spark that could set a whole forest ablaze. I had a friend in college who was a habitual liar. He lied about everything. He lied about his past. He lied about his ministry. He lied about his mission trips. He lied about his marks in school. He lied about what was taking place. Everything that seemed to come out of his mouth was a lie. It means we could never trust him. Do you know somebody who always speaks poorly of others? And do you find yourself thinking, when I'm not around, does, does he speak poorly of me too? My friends, guard your mouth for relational blessings await. Then he says, turn from evil. These three words are absolutely packed, aren't they? And it would be a perfect opportunity for me to stand on my soapbox and slap around my favorite sin. But I don't want to do that. I want to talk in the positive. This past Tuesday night, we had a Freedom Session graduation. Freedom Session is one of our ministries here at Ellerslie and is this intensive healing discipleship journey. And for those in attendance, for those who had spent 30 weeks working through personal profiles and recognizing this is who I am and this is who God has called me to be. And it was incredible journeys of how they had turned away from sin and turned towards God. It was a whole evening of basically this idea from John 10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus comes that you might have life and have it to the full. How good is that news? The chains are broken. Healing is offered. And hope is given. Finally, says Peter, We need to seek peace. Have you ever heard the parable of the farmer and the travelers? It goes something like this. A wise farmer is tilling his line when a traveler uh, comes up and says to the farmer, hey, what are the people like in the town up ahead? The farmer pauses and in his wisdom says, what were the people like in the town you just came from? And the traveler goes, oh, they were terrible. They would backstab you. They would say terrible things about you. No one was kind to another. It was an awful place to live. The farmer, rather saddened by the response, says, oh, traveler, I have bad news for you. The people are the same up ahead. 
The traveler grumbled and continued on his way. A couple hours later, a second traveler came and asked the exact same question. Hey, farmer, what are people like up in the town ahead? And the farmer asked the exact same question. What were people like from the town you just came from? And he goes, oh, they were wonderful. Neighbors loved each other, supported one another, were always looking out for each other's backs. And the farmer smiled and said, I have good news for you, traveler. The people in the town ahead are the exact same way. Friends, will we be people of peace? Will we be people who want to seek peace and see the good news of Jesus spread throughout? Our convictions will strengthen our resilience and empower our witness in both word and deed. These are verses 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. In the Old Testament, which takes place before Jesus was born, when God's people were facing their enemies, they expected God to come to the rescue. The Israelites, after traveling around the desert for 40 years, arrive in the promised land, but it's filled with enemies. And yet they believe that God will go in and take care of them. There's other enemies like the Philistines who are threatening God's people, and they believe that God will raise somebody up, and he raises up David to conquer Goliath, and give the Israelites the victory. Priests of a rival God threaten or mock their God, and then God just sends fire from heaven. I wonder how many of Peter's audience were thinking, okay, now we're gonna get to it. He understands our suffering. He understands what we're going through. Tell us how God is going to conquer. But it's not what happens. There is no dramatic rescue. Instead, Peter is bluntly honest. You're going to suffer. People are going to make your life difficult. But when it happens, show them the love of Jesus in both word and in deed. I read an article some time ago that talks about what makes for great communication. And the author of this article said there's really three things. Are you charismatic? Are you wise? And do you have great experience? If you can master one of these things, you will capture the audience's attention. Master two of these, and you'll be one of the top 1% speakers. Master all three, and you'll be world-class. It's hard to understand charisma through writing. But the apostle Peter, like all the biblical writers, is full of wisdom. And wow, does he have a story to tell. And so when we think about suffering for the gospel, when we think about being a witness in word and in deed, Peter is saying, look at my life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was standing in the courtyard of the high priest, warming his hands by a fire. And someone comes up to him and, he, and says, were you with Jesus? And Peter denies that he ever knew who Jesus was. Do you know who it was that came up to him and asked him that? It wasn't this powerful guard. It was a slave. But not just any slave, it was a female slave. 
And not just a female slave, it was a young girl. And Peter couldn't stand up to it. He moved to a different part of a courtyard and another female slave walks up to him. And again, he says, I don't know who that person is. A third time, somebody says to him, aren't you one of those who follow Jesus? And Peter said, no, it wasn't me. And it's as though Peter is saying to us as his audience, you know who's failed? I've failed. We've all messed up in word and deed. I have as well. But thankfully, that's not the end of Peter's story. Less than two months later, after the Holy Spirit comes down on Peter and about 120 other people at Pentecost, thousands of Jews are coming out of the Temple Mount. And Peter says to them, listen, people of Israel, Jesus died for your sins. Come and believe in him. And 3,000 were added to that number that day. A short time later, we don't know how much longer, Peter and John are walking along and they see a cripple standing on the Temple Mounts. Pardon me, sitting on the Temple Mounts, begging for money. Peter, having compassion on this beggar, says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. Because of this incredible miracle, Peter and John are now pulled before the Sanhedrin. About two months later, he couldn't stand in front of a young slave girl in the high priest's courtyard. Now there are about 70 of the wealthiest, most powerful Jewish men staring down at him. Lawyers, teachers of the law, people who have studied abundantly. And Peter looks at them and he says, the reason that we are here is because of the person of Jesus Christ. And they are wowed by who he is and what he's done. Peter learned that the fear of God is a much greater substitute than the fear of man. And he's reminding us that there's a spiritual blessing available for everybody. He doesn't deny the struggle, but he says, listen, the blessings are real. As an aside, I I don't recommend books often, but I recently read Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. If you can't read the subtitle, it says, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. I found this book incredibly helpful, filled with insights, exercises to work through, and a great biblical foundation. One of the spiritual blessings of living a faithful life, says Peter, is that people will start to ask about the reason for the hope that you have. Have you ever thought to yourself, how am I going to share my faith? One of my friends used to be a radio DJ and I was talking to her at a party and we were talking about public speaking and the art that goes into that. And she said, one of the most helpful things my boss ever did for me is he would ask a question on the spot and he would say, Aaron, give me an answer in 30 seconds, in two minutes and in five minutes because she had to learn how to fill that airspace. When somebody asks to hear about the reason for the hope that we have, do you know what you're going to say and do you understand how much time you have? That 30 seconds, it's that elevator pitch. Why do you believe in Jesus? Two minutes, you can defend it a little bit. Five minutes, asking for your testimony. So let's walk through that really quick and to give you some really practical illustrations of what to do. Pretend you have 30 seconds to answer. What do you say? I would recommend you go to John 3.16. I believe 
that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That takes about 10 seconds. You still have 20 seconds to spare. What if you feel like you have a couple of minutes? You have one, maybe two people who are interested in what you have to say. You can grab a piece of paper, you can grab a napkin, maybe you have a doodle app on your phone, and you can draw out something that we call the bridge illustration. And it goes something like this, really easy to draw. You draw one side of a bridge, another side of a bridge, and this chasm in between. And you say, you know what, I stand right here. This is me hanging out on this side. God is over on the other side of the chasm. And every time I make a mistake, every time I fall short of God's glory, it reminds me that I cannot be with a perfect God without somebody being that bridge in between. If I use poor language, I deserve hell. If I speak poorly of somebody else, if I look at things I shouldn't look at, if I do things that aren't right and glorifying him, I fall short of God's perfection. There's only one way for us to get to God, and that's through the incredible person of Jesus Christ. And it's through belief in Jesus that we can go and spend time with God. What if you have five minutes? Your personal story is incredibly powerful. How did you meet Jesus? If you grew up in a Christian home, talk about how good it was growing up in that home. What's your life been like since you've been with Jesus? And is there something that stands out in the scriptures that you want to share in that couple minutes of time? It's very possible that the way you respond will be even more powerful than what you say. When you look at the last part of verse 15, it says, do this with gentleness and respect. They've asked for why you believe the way you do. Answer gently, answer lovingly, and point them to the glory of Jesus. We started with belief and conviction. We just looked at witness and word and deed. We wrap up with victory and suffering. Is the struggle real? Yes. But the blessings are incredible. 18 to 22. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Reading verses 18 and 22, kind of the bookends of those five verses, there's this cadence that leads many people to believe this was an early statement of faith or maybe even a creed. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit, and now sits at the right hand of God. It's powerful stuff, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. But first we have to admit, this middle section, it's pretty interesting. Did Peter just say that Jesus went to hell and preached to the saints down there? He sure did. 
Martin Luther, in speaking about this passage, says, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. With this in mind, we should be cautious how we interpret it. So let me take off my preaching hat for a moment and put on my teaching hat. There are three main interpretations of what this means, each with its own variations, depending on who you read and who you listen to. So I'm going to start with the least likely and work my way up to what I believe is the most likely. The least likely interpretation is this. It's Jesus offering a second chance of salvation. It doesn't hold a whole lot of theological weight, but it pulls on our heartstrings. How many of us, having lost a loved one, think to ourselves, God, can they have a second chance? Many of us want to believe our friends, our family members are in glory with Jesus. The problem is the scriptures just don't back that up. In Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he says this, between us and you, speaking of heaven and hell, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In Hebrews 9, 27, we read, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. A more likely option, but still with holes in it, is that Jesus is preaching to the unsaved people of Noah's day. Contextually, this makes sense. It's brought up to us in verse 19, and then following in verse 20, we read that God was um, being patient with an unbelieving people. Some think it took Noah 100 years to build that boat. That's a lot of patience for an awful and reviling world. On top of this, in Peter's second letter, 2 verse 5, he calls Noah a herald of righteousness, and gives us the idea that Jesus is already speaking through Noah as a prophet and is now finishing his job. I believe the third option is the most viable. Fallen angels awaiting final judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, which is the beginning of the flood account, we read, The sons of God married the daughters of men. Some scholars believe that the sons of God are fallen angels. And it's during this time that they marry earthly women. An awful, heinous, terrible things take place. In support of this argument, the larger New, Text, New Testament context, almost without exception, uses the term spirits to refer to supernatural beings, not people, which pokes holes into the second argument. And the word prison in this way is only used for Satan and his demons, never for humanity. In other words, Jesus goes to prison, proclaims to the angels who were with him in heaven, but chose to rebuke him and go down as demons and tell him the good news that he has defeated death, conquered the grave, the battle is won, and all who believe in him will receive eternal life. Satan and the fallen angels have lost. Whatever the answer is, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Can you imagine the disciples sharing a meal with the resurrected Christ only to have Jesus say, oh man, totally forgot to tell you, crazy story. Guess what happened to me after I was killed on the cross and before I rose back to life? Preaching hat back on. The book of 1 Peter is all about resilience. Will you take the beliefs that we have and turn them into actual conviction? Will your conviction be so strong that you will be a witness for Christ in both the words that you say 
and the life that you live, recognizing that there is victory in the midst of suffering. In the same way that God provided an ark for Noah and his family, God is providing us the person of Jesus Christ for all who believe in him to be saved. Looking again at verse 18, it says, Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus received the death that we deserve so that we might receive the life that only God deserves. It is through his suffering, through his death on the cross, and ultimately through his resurrection that we might receive the greatest victory, the greatest blessing this world has ever known. It's by entering the waters of baptism that we are uniting ourselves with Christ and that we too have victory over sin and death. Friends, there is victory in suffering. And you might hear that and say, Dave, is there any way around that? What if, what if I just keep it to myself? What if I don't tell people what I believe? What if nobody knows that I'm a Christian? You could go that route. But you would completely miss the spiritual blessings God has in store for us. Have you had the privilege of leading a friend or a loved one to faith? There is an incredible joy in seeing the light bulb go on and having them commit their lives to following Jesus. Being a part of our alpha ministry, leading somebody to faith is transformative. To listen on Tuesday night, these incredible stories of life change and freedom session reminds us the power of small groups, reminds us the power of triads, reminds us that even though the suffering, even though the struggle is real, the spiritual blessings are absolutely incredible. Jesus laid down his life, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate suffering to give a blessing to all who believe in him. My friends, will you be resilient? The struggle is real. The blessing's incredible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the example of Peter who says, hey, look, I too have messed up. I too have fallen short, but look how God has worked in me. God, forgive us for where we have fallen short. Forgive us where we have missed the mark and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be great ambassadors for you in word and in deed, seeing the good news of Jesus spread throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen.